Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. Today is our season finale, and I am so excited because we are talking to my good friend, John Jennings. John is many things. He's a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. He's a New York Times bestselling and Hugo Award-winning author and artist illustrator. He's the Eisner Award-winning editor of The Black or the Ink, Constructions of Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art. He's also the co-founder of a number of cultural events around the country, including the Schomburg Center's Black Comic Book Festival. And most recently, he's also the writer of the current comic book series, Silver Surfer, Ghostlight. John is also my co-author of our upcoming book, My Superhero is Black. So I'm really excited he's joining us today to give a little insight into his work, but also a little insight into the comic book industry and what's going on with diversity. So welcome to Marvel's Voices, John Jennings. Thank you for having me, Angelique Roche. (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, this all started us working together and doing cool stuff from an interview at the Schomburg Black Comics Festival randomly because we were getting ready to do Marvel's Voices, number one. And that was kind of like the beginning of a road that has lasted several years. And it's been pretty incredible. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I think that essay was called Lift Every Voice, and it was basically talking about the importance of diverse characters, not just in the Marvel Universe, but in in general, and, you know, what it means to people who are marginalized to see themselves reflected in the society that they participate in, whether it's in media and other spaces, too. And as you know, having these fictional narratives actually helps spark interest in making things real in the, the really real world, right? So... Well, and that's kind of what you do. And you have built this space as an artist, as a writer, as an editor, where you're lifting up and amplifying the voices of people of color across the spectrum, like BIPOC, LGBTQIA, not just in the comic sphere. And it's important because all of those different genres impact how we see ourselves in the world. No, that's totally true. And that's why I do it. And so from an early standpoint in my academic career, I started to see the dearth of representation, you know, as someone who's teaching graphic design at the time to, you know, mostly white and Asian students, actually. You didn't see like a lot of African-American students in these spaces. And I was like, well, I just wasn't seeing aesthetics that reflected the culture that I knew was out there. And so I started to integrate as much history and different types of like media savvy if you will (laughs) into the class right as far as like just the different types of learning outcomes and things that i could put into my design classes like for instance creating a hip-hop design class or an afrofuturist design class or a class around ethics and image making you know because people like oh i can make this image but should i make this image so you know so me and my friend eric benson created the first ethics class in design you know which is now required they teach like five sections of it now in the program that I used to be in at University of Illinois. So it's very telling, you know, that we uh, are saturated by all this media and, you know, we get used to not seeing ourselves and you don't know necessarily that you need it until it happens. That's how I felt when I saw the Black Panther film, for instance, you know, everybody that knows me knows that Daredevil is my favorite superhero. But when I saw Okoye say, we are home, you know, when they go through the barrier 
into Wakanda, you know, I just burst into tears immediately because I, you know, I didn't know that I needed to see that on a big screen. And, and I'm sure that millions of people feel the same way, right? Well, and I think that's it's such a, a strong point to be made. And I want to kind of take a step back. You have been a comic book fan for a very long time, but you are also one of our comic book fans from the South. Yes. How did you first get into comic books? Well, I came up in a, uh, a small farming community called Flora, Mississippi. It's about 15 miles north of Jackson. And my mother went to Alcorn State University, which is a historically black school. And she was really into literature. She was really into reading. My mom has always been like a massive sci-fi and horror and action movie connoisseur, you know. <laughs> so I started reading her books first. And then I started reading like mythology from different cultures, you know, like Egyptian mythology and Norse mythology and Greek mythology. And then what happened was my mom bought me the Mighty Thor and it was over with pretty much. She got me Mighty Thor, Daredevil, Superman, you know, any comics, hot stuff, Archie, you know, I was reading it. So she was happy about that, you know, as far as like just my ardent love of reading, you know, these adventures. But it was the Mighty Thor that got me in because I saw the connection between the mythology that I had read, and then also the comics, you know. So that was, it was on and popping then. <laughs> it was trying. Then when I saw the Vision, oh my God, I was like, wait a minute. The Vision's costume was so crazy. I was like, what is this Avengers thing? And then before you knew it, I was just like, I just fall in love with comic books. <laughs> well, and I think it's interesting because you're one of our unique polymaths over at Marvel where, yes, you write, but also you're an artist, you're an award-winning artist with an incredibly unique style. Did you know that you always wanted to draw graphic novels and comic books? Yeah, I mean, I I did. I knew at an early age, I want to say it was probably like around 10 or 11 when I discovered that, first of all, that comics was a job. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because it's, that's when you start paying attention to this person did this. And just, you know, if you're reading comics, you're looking at everything. We become like a, an anthropologist of comics, essentially, at a young age. And so before you know it, he's like, wait, I know that adults have jobs, and I feel like this is hard. So this they're getting paid for this, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, they're coming out of New York. And then I was like, hey, I think I want to go to New York and be a, a comics maker of some kind, right? And then um, I did the most egregious thing I could have done to myself is I gave up. Yeah, because... You know, when I started making art, I was like, well, I don't draw like that. I don't make comics like that. So I don't think that my style or, or the way I'm thinking about comics would fit. You know, this is before I understood that there was underground comics and independent comics and things like that. So, so yes, I always wanted to be a comic artist or a comic writer or something. But it wasn't until, oh, my God, my second post as a professor, like the early 2000s, until I started actually thinking about other ways to, to become part of the culture, so to speak. I love it. And along the way, you have this way of cultivating and really seeing the nuance in people's art, but also seeing the nuance in stories and asking these particular questions like, well, what happens? Well, where did this character come from? Where are their families? And I love that because you've now had this unique opportunity to come aboard at Marvel and answer one of those questions you've already had, you know, yeah. we've had this really interesting conversation about Albie Harper, who is in one of these very prolific books that Stan Lee did with the Silver Surfer. And 
now you're getting to write his, well, what happened? Mm-hmm. Where is his family? Why this guy in the middle of the woods? Um, right. In the middle of the so, woods. Exactly. In the middle of the woods. <laughs> uh, because, you know, Albie Harper has a very used to have a very short life in the Marvel comics where it's like, yeah, it's this African-American guy. He's brilliant. He's a recluse. And he got to ride Silver Surfer's surfboard. And then he dies. Talk to us a little bit about this next chapter of Al's life. It's now out in the world. Silver Surfer Ghostlight. Yeah. um, Well, some of it came from the fact that you and I are working on another project together dealing with... um, the history of Marvel's black superheroes, you know, from 1950 to current day. But we were going through this, and I, and I think it was at a point where it was during the, the George Floyd protests. I had recently lost my older sister, you know, to a heart attack, like a sudden heart attack, right before we lost uh, Chadwick Boseman, you know, to cancer. And then, you know, people were in the streets. The, the world was on fire. You know, there was a lot going on. And um, I had lost a, a good friend, you know, to COVID. And it was just... It was a lot of Black death, so to speak. There was a lot of death. And COVID was affecting minority population more, as usual, right, for different reasons. And uh, I came across Albie Harper in my rereading of history, right? And um, the character, you know, he gives up his life to save the planet. And the Silver Surfer, to commemorate him as a hero, puts this cosmic flame on his grave to mark him as a hero until the end of the world, right? And I was like, that's how the Fantastic Four got their powers. Why is he not alive? Like, how is... I mean, we can bring him back, right? <laughs> and so that's where it kind of started. Like, why is he dead? And in some ways, you know, Stan Lee kind of wrote a Black Death Matter story, the way I look at it, because, you know, to give you some context, I mean, Civil Surfer Number no. 5 came out in 1969. It was written by Stan Lee, drawn by John Bishima. And um, it was a year after the, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the world was still in a lot of turmoil. And it seemed that Stan wanted to have a conversation about civil rights, about oppression, about Black people, you know? And the name of the chapter that he wrote is called, uh, And Who Shall Mourn for Him, right? And so he's setting up a scenario where he created a character that he knew he created to, to die. And Al Harper is beautifully drawn. He looks like Luke Cage or like Robbie Robertson or somebody. He got the pipe, you know, he's he's handsome. And, you know, from, from the Marvel comics piece, he's drawn to look like a hero, right? His, his physique is like a superhero. You know, he's not drawn as like a little... You wouldn't have known that he was a, a, a physicist when you see him picking up rocks, you know, when the silver surfer falls out the sky. So he's made to be a hero, right? He's noble, you know, he's extremely talented and smart, you know, he's very capable. And he becomes friends with the silver surfer and he tries to help him and in doing so forfeits his life. And I was like, wow, this is pretty incredible. And he had no backstory. He was a plot point, right? To a certain degree too. So what I wanted to do is answer Stanley's first question, which was, and who shall mourn for him? I'm like, his people. <laughs> Where's people at? Right? <laughs> so it's like, does he have a mother, a father? Is he, is he married? You know, why is he in the middle of the woods just waiting for the silver surfer to fall from the sky? <laughs> you know, like, what was he doing before? Like, who's he working for? What kind of research is he doing? These are the types of things that I wanted to answer. And the second thing, without being too long-winded, is the name, Ghostlight, was... Around the same time that I was reading about, you know, these protests and seeing everything happen around the world, around the movement for Black Lives and all of the things, the theaters were shut down across the country, were shut down. And so there's this thing called a ghost light that is a light that you leave on to signify that the show is going to come back. You know, it's the last light 
you know, that's on. And it's called the ghost light because there's this weird folktale that all theaters are haunted, right? So I guess the ghosts want to get their practice on. I have no idea. But thought it was a great name for a superhero. So there you have it. So one of the things I really love about not just what you were trying to bring forward in Al. It's like we were having a lot of discussions as you were going through putting the story together and thinking about the characters. And one of the things I loved about your process is that you wanted to create, one, his family. And that meant that you were crafting new characters for the Marvel Universe. In particular, I feel like you wanted to have the eyes of a child. And so you created two kids, which is always so amazing because it almost makes us feel like they're us in the story. But you have a particular love for villains. Yes. <laughs> you know, you and I have both talked about the fact that there has been a lack of villains of color kind of just in comic books in general. What was your thought as you were kind of creating this story and then being able to pull in more characters of color, but also more black culture, right? So there are notes of jazz in the story, bringing forward a little bit of history and culture and what does it mean to have this brilliant physicist turned superhero, kind of the likes of Blue Marvel, bringing these not just strong, but smart characters in. One, what does your research look like? But then also, what did you really want or find important to bring into this new story? I don't know. I, I think what I was trying to do is create, first you have to create a character, you know, that's the thing. And so I only had five issues to do it. And so Al had to become beloved almost instantaneously. Right. And so I had to think about like, well, we had all these other characters like Peter Parker and Iron Man and Reed Richards and all these other characters that have families, they have people to care about them. Most superheroes are orphans, right? That initial pain of like losing Uncle Ben or Matt Murdock losing his dad, that's the first wound, right? What was interesting about Al is the reverse. The family loses him, you know? And so what does that mean? And so, you know, it reverberates through the family. It's like, okay, well, what does it mean for someone to actually like not know what happened to their loved one? What kind of like wound would that leave, you know? And so that was the first thing I wanted to think about. How do we solve that mystery first and actually give at the same time, give Al his humanity? So that's the first thing. We had to make a character first, which I dedicated a whole issue to, essentially. You don't see a lot of kids in comics anymore. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, it's a fantastic space. I wanted to create kids around the same age I was when I first started reading comics. Marvel's mantra is uh, presenting the world outside your window. Now, mind you, I hadn't really seen my world that much in Marvel's windows. I didn't see like stories happening in Mississippi and pastures and thickets, right? But I did get a peep into what New York might have been like, right, from a particular standpoint. So I wanted to actually have a POV character, a little black girl, teenage girl named Tony Brooks, who is our window. And so this is the thing that, that I, I'm thinking about a lot. I'm 52 years old. The majority of my life, I've had to extend my empathy to people who don't look like me or come from various backgrounds. You know, it's about time that that changed. And I was like, I want people to actually extend empathy to Al. And to look at what his world is, you know, look at these people. One of the most miraculous things about this book is the fact that I got a chance to actually not only resurrect this black character who was in some ways a throwaway character, right? But also give him these other characters that actually play off of him and resonate with him, you know? As far as like research, I mean, I did a 
there's a book called The Physics of Jazz that was actually like a really big help for me that Yatasha Womack told me about. And he's a very Afrofuturist character. I mean, he is pretty much like the idea of Sankofa as a person. Sankofa is this uh, West African term that literally means go back and get it. Right? And it's a central theme in like Afrofuturism to go back and learn from your history. And the symbol for Sankofa, one of the big symbols is a bird reaching back over its shoulders to grab an egg from the past to bring to future generations. And in the middle of Al's chest is this, this oval, which represents an egg, you know, that he is Sankofa, that he is like an Afrofuturist, you know, idea. And so if you look closely, there's like Afrofuturist notions throughout the entire story that I've kind of like hid there as uh, Easter eggs as well, or Sankofa eggs in this case. <laughs> so. <laughs> so for those who may not be as familiar with Afrofuturism, can you give folks a little bit of a thread to pull on who might be going? So what does Afrofuturism really mean? So Afrofuturism is, first of all, it's not a genre. It's an epistemology. It's a way of seeing. What you do is you put the African diaspora, Black folk, in the center of the narrative. And that's the first thing. So it's, it's Afrocentric, and it changes the view to an Afrocentric view. The second thing is it deals with speculative culture. So that's like science fiction, fantasy, horror, you know, and technology, various types of technologies. And what it does is actually like it analyzes the issues around history. It reimagines history. It reimagines the future from a, a Black perspective. And in doing so, kind of opens up conversations about various things that have happened to Black folk throughout time and space here on this planet, right? So the other thing that's really cool is that it's multidisciplinary. So you can actually have an Afrofuturist dance practice. You can actually have an Afrofuturist religious practice. There was a woman named Ingrid Lafleur who had an Afrofuturist like mayoral campaign. And the reason why we do this is because, as you know, being Black in America is still very contentious, you know? And in some ways, it's a reimagining of the history of the future. And this is what Lisa Yazik says in her writings, is that back in the day, <laughs> you didn't see Black people in the futures. I mean, you didn't see Black folk in science fiction and fantasy in the 1950s. It's not until like the 1960s that you see your first inklings of Black people in television. It's not Nichelle Nichols either, by the way. It's probably on Outer Limits. There was an astronaut from a future Africa that was part of a story. And it was so like... It wasn't even the focus of the story, but it's like, wait a minute, this guy's from where? <laughs> from future Kenya or something like that? I'm like, wow. And then you get like stuff like Star Trek, right? So anyway, so, you know, that's it in a nutshell. It's, but it's not just black sci-fi. It's thinking about epistemologies and cosmologies from an Afrocentric standpoint. One of the interesting things is even while you were doing Ghostlight, you also have like all of these other things that you do. You have seen the need to have more creatives in a space, build more creative teams and have really been able to get people out there and highlighted. But you're also the director of Abram Comics Arts imprint Megascope. So you get a chance to also uplift these stories. Tell our listeners a little bit about what the imprint is and what's its purpose. So Abrams is the first art book publisher in our country. It's uh, created in 19, I think 1948 by Harry and Abrams. It's a New York-based publisher. If you've read or heard of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, that's probably one of their most like 
popular books, but they they also have a lot of other books out into the world that you've probably seen. Anyway, so they were the publisher that actually, under Abrams Comic Arts, published me and Damian Duffy's award-winning adaptation of Kindred by Octavia Butler. And we've also done Parable of the Soar by Octavia Butler. These books sold really well, and I was able to actually segue from that into pitching an imprint. And for those of y'all who don't know what an imprint is, it's kind of like having your own record label, <laughs> you know, if you think about it from like a from a music standpoint. So it's kind of like having a little bit of that particular company that you kind of oversee. So I got the name Megascope from a W.E.B. Du Bois uh, short story called The Princess Steel, in which he introduces this idea, which is written in 1909, by the way, 20 years before science fiction as a term is coined by Hugo Gernsback in 1929. And it's a device that sees through time and space. And so I thought it'd be a great name for a line of books, a line of graphic novels dedicated to BIPOC creators. We look at speculative fiction, so science fiction, fantasy, magical realism, what have you. We're also looking at um, historical fiction and also crime fiction. And these are full-length adult graphic novels that are put out, and I'm the lead curator, so I basically will go and find creative teams, put together pitches, and then see if we can get books made. And so now I think we have like eight books out. Our recent book that's about to drop is a Afrofuturist version of The Count of Monte Cristo written by Ayuse Jama Everett and illustrated by a gentleman named Tristan Roach, who's from the island of Barbados. So we're looking at a spectrum of representations, right? Uh, we were just nominated for a NAACP Image Award for a book by Tanana Du and Stephen Barnes and drawn by Marco Finnegan. So it's been really exciting to work on this book. This is a lot of work, actually. But little by little, we're changing the industry, I think, you know, one book at a time. I love it. So... Why do you think it's so important to publish graphic novels focused on the experience of Black people, not just from an Afrofuturistic perspective, but like there is historic fiction that you're working on. There's fantasy just kind of across the board. Well, one of the first things that you try to do to a people when you dominate them or when you enslave them, when you think you own them, is to erase their culture, is to actually make them believe that they were not part of society, that they didn't help create society. That's one of the first things you do, is you destroy the art. That's when, for instance, if you see someone who's pillaging, right? <laughs> you know, they destroy libraries and they destroy art and they destroy the things that make you feel special, right? That's the first step to dehumanization, turning someone from a person into a thing, right? And we're not things, right? That's the thing. And so it's like people who are treated this way have culture and have created monuments and, and written amazing poetry and tapestries and help elevate not just black uh, society, but humans, human beings, you know. And of course, right now we have a, a race to eradicate any true history of America, right? Country that I love, country that I, that I signed up to give my life to. A lot of people forget that I was uh, in the military, for instance, right? But I take education very seriously. I was raised by people who couldn't read or write, who didn't have access to education, right? But knew the value of it. So there's this thing, this term from sociology called symbolic annihilation. And basically what it kind of gets at is that if you try to erase people, if you get rid of things that they've made, if you don't show their faces, if you don't show them in, at all, you make them invisible, then it's kind of a social death. It's kind of like killing them metaphorically, right? And so, you know, I think that Something as potentially trivial as a comic book that was created for mass consumption and to be thrown away is wonderful, 
you know, it's wonderful and subversive and beautiful. And uh, I think that making graphic novels that are about everyone levels the playing field. Because not only does it show our humanity, it displays humanity to everyone. And if that makes people uncomfortable, good, because we don't learn when we're comfortable. We learn when we're uncomfortable. So for you, how do you approach finding creators for this work? What does it look like to make sure they're representative of the stories that you're telling? It's difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult. For instance, just on like Afrofuturism, right? Just if we just look at that, I've been working as an Afrofuturist scholar since like 2008. So that's 15 years, right? So I've been teaching for over 20 years and I've always been black. <laughs> I've always been black, you know? So I've always been trying to figure out ways to see myself in the work that I'm doing. So I've been collecting, <laughs> I've been collecting connections, people, resources for over two decades. So it's hard, but it takes a while and it takes a long time. And so what happens though, is that if you become an expert in a particular space, you don't have to work as hard because people tell you about things, you know, it's not just Google alerts, but people say, Hey, you know, you should meet this person or you I have a daughter that does this or like, you know what? My friend so-and-so, you know, is really in a power man iron fist and then he wants to maybe talk to you. So before you know it, you have this really, really interlocking network of resources that you bring to the table, you know, it's because my passion, not just being a nerd, but thinking about the future. And I have to say, like, after becoming a dad three and a half years ago, I realized it isn't just trivial, that it's really, really important for a better future. Because you have to imagine a better future first, you know? I love that. And I think that's so core to linking together what you're talking about when we look at the importance of representation, we look at the importance of having the right people telling the stories so there are authentic and genuine. Do you find that it can sometimes be difficult setting up the space to sustain folks, though? Because that's another conversation about building these teams is it's important to be able to create structures as well. Yes, yeah, definitely. And um, that includes spaces, that includes... Okay, let me backtrack a little bit. So, you know, you talked about the curatorial work that me and my friend Damian Duffy pioneered was pulling together Black independent creators in a book so people can see that we're there. You know, a book is important because it actually gives you a space where you can see dialogue and you see, even if people are like at, at odds with each other, that there's a collective first. The other thing then is to create venues, right, where people can actually empower themselves financially and culturally and spiritually, right? And so that's why I started co-founding Black comic book spaces. Like, you know, I'm one of the co-founders of the Schomburg Black Comic Book Festival, which is, as far as I can tell, the largest comic book festival of its kind and probably in the world at this point. But I also co-founded several others since then for people of color because you have to have a network that actually supports you, that actually is looking at you as a creator and a publisher. And the other thing is mentorship, creating like mentorship opportunities so you can teach each other how to do this correctly and actually how to make a living at it, right? So these are things that are also important, right? It's almost like the Nguzu Saba as practice, right? Collective economics, you know, creativity, unity, you know, all these types of things, right, that are actually part of the diaspora. We actually have to practice, you know, because we created an outside system, you know, it's a system that's outside of like the mainstream. Yeah. And that's actually a great segue to my next question. 
you know, you actually won an Eisner for your work on the Black or the Ink, Constructions of Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art. What can you tell our listeners about that book and like some of the things you actually kind of learned in that that process of editing and bringing those facts together? Because many of them were people's first time learning about some of this stuff. Oh, definitely. So first of all, shout out to Dr. Frances Gatewood, who is my co-editor on that amazing book. I learned so much from her through the process, just to start with. She now is at Howard University. So, you know, going into it, we were like, okay, we want to talk about these different things that are outside of superheroes. So if you notice, there's very few, like, stories about superheroes there. We wanted to look at comics as a medium, you know. Can we take a step back? I really want to, like, highlight that. Okay. Superhero comics are a genre. That's correct. Comics are a medium. A medium. That's right. So, for instance, because of, like, how popular superheroes have been in our country, it it totally has become, like, shorthand for the medium of comics, which is unfortunate because it's something that actually has hindered the growth of an adult-oriented comics industry, right? But that's neither here nor there. So, one of the things that um, I learned a great deal from as far as, like, just going through these different styles of writing or what have you is it's, like, how people are actually speaking through comics in different ways, and I learned a lot about just the different discourses that people were using to look at comics. So we had people who were like from American studies, rhetorical studies, women and gender studies, African-American studies, and they were actually using their epistemology to look at comics in these really, really fascinating ways and just spectacular essays, spectacular essays. It took us a long time, too. It took us five years to do that book. It was great. <laughs> it was a great, it's a great book. You know, for those who may not be familiar with the networks you've kind of created. You mentioned that you co-founded the Schomburg Center's Black Comic Book Festival, which is incredible every single year. Let's shout out what the Schomburg actually is. The Schomburg is named after Arturo Schomburg, who is an Afro-Latino collector and kind of curator in his own right of the Harlem Renaissance. And basically, this particular space is dedicated to African-American culture it's the repository of the Harlem Renaissance and when I say that I mean that it's one of the blackest spaces on the planet it's on Malcolm X Boulevard in the middle of Harlem right if you go there there's a cosmogram you know based off of the Negro Speaks of Rivers written by Langston Hughes and under that cosmogram are some of his ashes buried in an urn in the foundation of this building right they have Zona Hurston's papers they got the papers of County Cullen W.B. Du Bois's papers right You can also see original artwork by people like Aaron Douglas, you know, hanging on the walls, decorating this. It's it's blickety black. So that's the first thing, right? It's like hyper black. Well, and that's important going back to this idea of saving those stories. Yes. And I think that's the same thing about the importance of us telling our joyful stories. These adaptations of Octavia Butler that you've been able to do. It's so interesting when you look back at that because that next step is you then building out and not just you multiple people who are artists and writers and editors from around the country coming together because you're on multiple coasts with this right because there's also BCAF. that's right there's the black and brown comic arts festival which uh, happens mlk weekend i think we're in our eighth year or ninth year something like that it's a sister event just co-founded camcon which is which is about to go into its second year next year is at the California African American Museum. 
in uh, Los Angeles. The first event brought in close to 2,000 people. It was wild, you know, into a museum space, right? Ryan Coogler popped in. It was incredible. Along with Frederick Luis Aldama, I had co-found SoulCon and also Ricardo Padilla, which was in Ohio State University, put together by him and ourselves. And also, you know, co-founding like think tanks like Astro Blackness at Loyola Marymount, which actually was a Afrofuturist think tank 2014-2015 that actually featured some of the greatest Black speculative scholars probably in the world. You know, you couldn't even get those people together now in one room. It'd be too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> like, man. Yeah, so, so you know, I'm just trying to figure out ways for us to have safe spaces where we can actually, like, have these conversations and empower each other. And it's not because we want to take over the planet. It's not because we want to control the world or anything like that. We just want to exist and be happy in that existence, you know. And um, that has never been... The whole idea of, like, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was not ever supposed to be for our people. We were not supposed to be able to actually even be alive. We're all like dreams. We're all like mystical in that way. You know, we're only supposed to be in three spaces. And that is the slave ship, the plantation, and the grave. Rinse and repeat. That was it. So anything after that is miraculous to me. I love that. And I think that's so interesting because this season we've been talking about this idea of what does it mean for people of color who are miraculously talented to then know these spaces exist. So is there anything you've kind of learned about building more creative and inclusive teams? Because we've been talking to folks all season about that, and I'd love to get your insight. Collaboration, I think, is key. We have this kind of westernized notion of the lone artur, like slaving away in their their studio. I've made, I'm a genius and I've made this wonderful thing. And it's a very, very like isolated, like kind of self-centered narrative. We create things together. You know, we create systems together. We make art together. We make stories together and we pass them along. And um, comics are, can be inherently collaborative, right? But what I've learned from collaboration is it's this beautifully intimate process. If you do it correctly, it's an extremely empowering process and it gets a lot of stuff done. You know, the thing is, though, you have to let your ego go and you have to realize that you have to share ideas, you know. And I think we come from a space where capitalism makes us want to own everything. My whole piece is like everybody owns it, you know, and that's wonderful. And I think that's actually what makes collaboration so powerful, you know, is sharing of ideas, you know. And it can be fearful. You know, if you're a control freak, then maybe you shouldn't do it. But I love sharing ideas. I love collaborating. And I've built really, really lasting friendships and really, really powerful allies by doing so. I think it's more important for an idea to live than for you to own it and just live on your computer. I've seen amazing things happen just from like sharing, you know, and I think that is the power of collaboration. Speaking of collaboration, before we go, talk a little bit about our book. Like selfishly, you know, My Superhero is Black is definitely something we've been working on for a minute. And mm-hmm. uh Well, that's been wonderful. Well, here's the thing. First of all, like, if no one buys the book, that's not going to happen. But if nobody buys the book, one of the most amazing things that have come from that is our friendship. Seriously. Like, it's, you've been a blessing. Marvel, you have a treasure. This woman is amazing. And so, had we known from the get-go that this book was a two-person job, <laughs> it's a two-person job. It's 80 years of continuity. African-American superheroes from like 1950 to current day. And if you know anything about like 
Marvel's continuity. It's very tangled and it's so many creators and it's so many contexts and so many things that are happening. It's been wild, but my superheroes black essentially is like kind of a rough guide to Marvel's characters. They're superheroes primarily from like 1950 to current day. And we're going through it decade by decade, sorting out the who, the why, and the what, you know, as far as like, why were these characters created? Why are they popular? Where these stories come from, you know, and hopefully give it to the public very soon. And it's a partnership between Marvel and Simon & Schuster Gallery Books. Angelique is a journalist and scholar, media scholar, all these different things. She brings a different standpoint to my crazy, like theoretical meanderings, right? Because I'm an artist. You know, my background is I'm an MFA in art. I'm not a journalist, right? And so what happens is I'll say something, right? <laughs> and then I was like, so, well, we got to prove that. We have to figure out what the context of that is, right? You just can't like just say that, right? <laughs> so now we have this really, really, I think a really compelling, beautifully done book because of the fact that we collaborated, you know? And, you know, if I was a greedy dude, I'd been like, yo, this is my show. I'm going to write this by my damn self, right? No, it just never would happen. It'd be like 10 years later, right? Before I got a chance to even do the book. So we've read like hundreds of comics at this point, trying to figure out like ins and outs of it. Some of the stuff we discover together, you know, as far as like online when we're writing together and figure out like, wait a minute, this was done. Why? And who did this? It's difficult because in early Marvel, everybody had pseudonyms. <laughs> it was so many. Jack Kirby by himself had so many like other names. It was just like, wait a minute. So this was actually Jack Kirby doing it. So this was, it was like this crazy mystery. It was like Columbo would pull his hair out. You know, seriously, it's wild up in here. Anyway, but it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Yeah, there are definitely some 3 a.m. thread pulling. So many things. And like probably some of the worst writing that I've done in my life. Because I was like trying to desperately write at four or five o'clock in the morning to kind of get a draft and something, even if it's just a janky, terrible thing that Anjali could edit and make better. Because <laughs> that's essentially what our relationship has been. It's like, here's something terrible. And Anjali kind of like does like Zeus and breathes life into it. <laughs> so that's kind of like how it's been. That is our book in a nutshell. Oh, you are Anjali saving me on a daily basis, and I'm very grateful for it. So, oh, you're the best. Thank you so much, John, for being this capstone conversation on the season. I could not think of a better way to finish off such an incredible set of conversations. And thank you to all of our guests this season. I've really had such a wonderful time digging into this idea of building inclusive creative teams across all of these different industries. Comics, Marvel Studios, films and television, animation, and providing more insight about how our favorite content is made. Stay tuned for information on our next season because we are coming back. And make sure to pick up all of the Marvel Voices comics anthologies that are coming out wherever you get your comics in the meantime. Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one should be on the shelves right now. So go check it out. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Carr McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey, and our executive producer is Jill Duvall. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainai. 